So show of hands, how many of us have been in a household with multiple kids, maybe young kids at the same time? Is that something that's been in most of our experiences, many of our experiences? Most of us have experienced this. We sit down with two kids and they, they've been fighting and your job is to untangle that bowl of spaghetti that's before you and figure out okay, what was going on, who was wrong? And so in my situation, I'm talking with, you know, usually it's Hudson and Ree in our household, and, you know, it's Hudson, you should not have hit your sister. You were wrong. But Ree, you also should not have screamed at him for hitting you. You also were wrong. You know, there's guilt on both sides. But then as you talk with him, you, you realize, well, actually, Ree, you should not have taken his toy away you were wrong, and Hudson, you should not have hit her for taking your toy away. And then it can actually, after more uh, investigation, it goes a little bit further, and you realize that Hudson, you should not have been making fun of her with your toy, calling her names, you were wrong, and Re, you should not have responded to his name calling by taking the toy away. And it's usually this kind of back and forth, and you realize that You've got two sides, there's a conflict going on, and it's not just straightforward or very simple, do this, don't do this. Um, and one of the things that we find, find about this, and, and this is, uh, there was a series that we did, um, I think it was last summer, um, Shepherding Your Child's Heart, or the biblical parenting um, that we went through that was great, and it was talking about parenting to the heart of the issue and the heart of the conflict. conflict not just the behavior modification. And um, we, we realize that w even in times where you have been wronged, that we want to teach our children there, there are still godly ways that you are responsible um, to respond even when you have been wronged. And so just because your brother hit, hit you or your sister stole your toy, whatever it might be, um, you might also have... Um, you know, a responsibility to respond in a godly way in that situation. And so, so with that, I mean, we understand the concept that there is always a godly way to respond in situations, and the godly response is not just a matter of do this or don't do this. It's not just a matter of one is right, one is wrong. That's not the way most of our interactions in life, um, in life work. There is and there can be right things to do and not to do, but what we want to be able to look at is the heart behind the response and the heart behind what you are, are going to do and not do. There's a reason behind the choices that you need to make. And this is where Paul is going to be sitting in Romans 14 up through the first half of Romans 15 today. He's sitting here with a bowl of spaghetti <laughs> in front of him in, in uh, the life of the Roman believers. In Paul's situation, it's actually a very specific, very pointed um, potential conflict in the local church in Rome. It's a very specific um, issue that he's addressing in the Roman church. And in this passage, though, Paul is not primarily trying to teach and correct the doctrinal error that is at the root of this issue. His focus, rather, on this passage is on the interactions and the relationships between the believers within this potential conflict. What he's focusing on is how you should respond and why you need to be responding this way. He does address the doctrinal issue, and we'll, we will take a look at that, but that's not his main purpose. His main focus is to know both how you need to respond and the reasoning behind that, how you need to res or why it is that you need to respond. And really what he's doing is he's continuing what he started in Romans 12, verse 1, which is what this whole series has been building upon. And if you want to go ahead and open up um, your Bibles to Romans 12, and we'll, uh, we'll read that, but we'll be spending most of our time today in Romans 14 up through um, the first half of Romans 15. 
But just as a way of reminder as to what is it that Paul is expounding on, we have in Romans 12, 1, the verse that covers all of this. It is, therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Presenting your bodies as a sacrifice to God, this is your spiritual worship. This is the spiritual worship. And so we, we know, and I want you to flip over the page to Romans 14, and we're going to be looking at a couple verses here, verses 8 and 9. I want to start um, our lesson today by looking at these two. So understanding the Romans 12.1 context within which we're, we're um, reading this passage today, we know that self-sacrificial worship, it is offering every detail of our life and actually of our death to the Lord. Self-sacrificial worship is offering every detail of your life and your death to the Lord. So let's read right from the middle of our passage today, verses 8 and 9. It says, For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. So Christ was doing the same thing, both in his living and his death. What was the end to which Christ died and lived again? That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. I mean, this passage, these two verses right here, it's such a great description of what Paul was talking back in Romans 12.1. The self-sacrificial worship is offering every detail of our life and our death to the Lord. And so, if you look in Romans 13, where we were looking last week, we saw that the dawn of Christ's day is coming. The dawn is right, is right um, around the corner. So, what do we do in light of the fact that the dawn is coming? Well, in Romans 13, he was saying that we clothe ourselves with the attire of the day, cast off the, the clothing that is not fitting, but instead clothe ourselves with the armor of light and live right now as though the day has arrived, right? So this is, this is what he had been talking about in 13. And so you can ask the question, how specifically can we clothe ourselves or put on the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of Calvary Bible Church? How can we put on Christ in um, the midst of the local church? And the answer to that question is, we live and we die for the Lord here. Everything that we do within our local body, within our families, within our workplace, everything we do is to the Lord. Um, everything that we do, even within the local body, is to the Lord. And so in Romans 14 and 15, Paul addresses an issue, and this is, this is what's interesting, Paul addresses an issue that can arise within a local church and apparently has arisen within the local church when two believers or two groups of believers enter into a conflict or disunity that is actually resulting from or coming out of their attempts to live for the Lord. So think of this. You have two groups of people that are seeking to live and even die for the Lord. This is who these groups of people are. And in the midst of their living to the Lord and even dying to the Lord, conflict or disunity can result out of that. That can almost be disheartening. <laughs> this is hard. But this is the issue that Paul is addressing right here. So, Let's, let's be clear. This is conflict that is arising between two groups. But both groups, they are, in the verses that we were just reading, they are seeking to live and die for the Lord. And conflict still arises. So then the question is, 
what do we do? <laughs> this, is, this is a tough situation. And this is where we come, and you can look on your handout, and you'll see this phrase right here, that self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial worship is offering every detail of your life and your death to the Lord. And what we're going to find in this passage is that we are given four acts of Christian unity that we must obey. Four acts that we can obey, that we can do to live a life of worship to the Lord. And specifically in the context of the local church. So these four acts of Christian unity, and you can jot these down and we'll get to them and we'll fill in a little bit more information later. But number one, don't judge. Number two, don't hinder. Number three, be selfless. And number four, be welcoming. Don't judge, don't hinder, be selfless, and be welcoming. So let's pray, and then we will jump right into Romans 14.1. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to look at your word. Um, we, we see and recognize that here you are addressing a local church with real people, real believers, who are in real conflict, even though they are truly and really seeking to be obedient to you. And Father, undoubtedly, this will be applicable to us, and this will be undoubtedly directly applicable to people in this room. And we pray, Father, that we would all learn and grow from this, and that as a result, we would be more faithful in our living of our lives to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at number one, where we're called don't judge. And we'll find we don't judge because, and we know this, God alone is judge. So let's look at verse one, and we're going to um, go ahead and read through verse 12. It says, now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats must not view the one who does not eat with contempt. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day above the other, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards the day regards it for the Lord, and he who eats, eats for the Lord, for he gives, gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you view your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So our passage that we're looking at this morning, um, up through verse 13 of Romans 15, this is long. <laughs> so um, this this section right here, these 12 verses, this is actually where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And the main reason is because this, is going to, this section that we just read, this is what is going to be foundational to really properly understanding the, the rest of the passage. So we're probably going to spend three-fourths of our time here um, really to um, be able to get the correct understanding of what the rest of the passage is saying. And so, again, as we mentioned, we have a very specific, very pointed conflict that is taking place um, that Paul is addressing here. And this is about a weaker brother and a stronger brother. 
Okay, we've got two groups of, pe- of people here. So very specifically, let's look, I guess, first, the weaker brother. The weaker brother, this is really going to be two groups of people are, can be included in with the weaker brothers. Um, the, the main group is more than likely, and there's reasons why, and we'll, we'll um, touch base as to this, but it's more than likely Jewish cr- Christians who are continuing to observe the Old Testament customs and laws. These are people who had grown up Jews. It had been from the time they were born, they had been living underneath the laws that were the dietary laws of you can eat, you cannot eat, this is clean, this is unclean. Um, It's the laws of observing the Sabbath and observing the different feasts and the holidays. It's the special days um, that they had to uh, observe. Um, And some of them um, might even be still struggling with the, the need or the desire to think that they needed to even go sacrifice in the temple. Um, so you have uh, the first group, which would be Jewish believers. They believe and love the Lord, but they have the strong conviction that the Jewish traditions that they had been raised in up through their childhood, that, that God had given to them, that these still were something that needed to be followed. But there can also be a second group of weaker brothers in here as well. And these, these would be the Gentile uh, believers. So people who had grown up within just a repulsive pagan society. They had probably even practiced and participated in sacrificing um, meat to idols and then eating those. And then, of course, all of the just, just the wretched abomination that goes with a lot of the, um, the, the sacrificial and the worship of the pagan deities of the day. And so these could be Gentiles who were now saved, that God saved them out of the filth. And now the, the idea of touching anything associated with that debauchery lifestyle just repulses them. And so eating the meat that is sacrificed to idols, or we actually have them in verse 21, it references the wine, you know, drinking wine, anything having to do with the drunkenness that was associated with that lifestyle just repulses them. And so you have these believers who possibly for different reasons have things that they um, feel must be observed or must not be observed, and their conscience is, is binding them. Um, But then you have, aside from the weaker brother, you have the stronger brothers. These are Christians recognizing the freedoms and the liberties in Christ. The stronger brothers. They realize that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial practices of the Old Testament. They, They realize and recognize that idols are nothing. That statue, it's nothing. And meat that is burnt and sacrificed to nothing has in no way been changed. It's affordable meat. And so a stronger brother is a brother who might not just recognize and know intellectually, but realize even in their heart that these things are not something that hold me bondage anymore. And so for, we, we see for the most part in this passage, it's not, it doesn't have to exclusively be, but for the most part, um, these divisions are along um, national or ethnic lines. And we see in, in uh, uh, chapters 15, so the next chapter, it actually has a section for several verses long that is emphasizing the unity and salvation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we understand from this, from the passage and what we find in the rest, rest of here, I mean, rest of the uh, section that we're looking at today, that the most of the conflict that we are dealing with is going to be the people who come from the Judaic, the, the Jewish background versus the Gentile background, and just the difference in the way that they were raised and the history that they bring to their faith and to the church is causing this point of, of um, contention. And so... Well, what we also find um, in here, and this isn't exclusively a Jewish-Gentile um, issue, but um, you know, it, it mentions the, the drinking of wine of being a point of issue. And so you know, that, that's, that's not something that is a Jewish-specific um, 
Jewish-Gentile-specific issue, but that, that's something that people from both sides, depending on, on their background and their history, it can bring a point of conflict in here. And so what we have in verse 1, it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. And so the first command here is actually given to the stronger brothers. Those who are stronger are told you need to accept the one who is weak in faith. So if you have ESV, the word um, that you're seeing and reading in your Bible is welcome the one. So let's understand what it is that we're being called to do. And very simply, accept, it it is welcome, but it's, it's extend an invitation. Extend this invitation to welcome into your home. And so you have the idea of receiving someone into your inner circle or into your local community. And a couple places that we find in Scripture that help illustrate this, Philemon in verse 17, Paul, actually speaking of Onesimus, the slave, he tells Philemon to accept or welcome him as you would welcome me. So just as you would receive me into your home and extend an invitation of me into your home, I want you to extend that same invitation to Onesimus. And uh, the same word is also used in Acts 28, where um, the natives of Malta, after the shipwreck, what did they do? The natives of Malta, they came and they welcomed, they extended that invitation of welcome um, for those who had been shipwrecked into their community, and they built the fires and provided for them, provided shelter and, and food and clothing and um, built fires. So it's this idea of bringing in warmly and, and, and welcomingly into your life. And so who is it that the strong brothers and sisters are to welcome, to bring in, to invite into their home, into their life? It's the weak, the weak in faith. And some understand this to be sickly. So their, their faith is sickly, and, and that is within the semantic range of the way that this word can be used. But a better understanding, that, and what the best sources actually say, is that this understanding would be more of a personal limitation or an incapacity to be able to bear up um, or, or comprehend something. So it says, the weak brother or sister they would have personal limitations that give them an incapacity in regards to their faith. You could think of it as personal limits that, of, of a person, a personal weakness or a deficiency in the area of something. So if you have a personal weakness in the area of your faith, this is what would be the weak, those who are weak in faith. It's not that um, they have a sick faith. It is just that they have some limitations, some areas that they do not have the capacity to be able to fully embrace. Now, this raises some questions. How do you have some limitations within your faith, right? So that that could raise some questions as well. So um, we're actually going to camp out here to make sure that we can understand the Faith, it is that there's a weakness or strength in. Um, and this is important because this is going to let us understand the passage as a whole. So the proper understanding of, of faith, that's going to therefore lead to our pro- proper application of um, this passage. So let's look at what the faith that is weak or the faith that is strong, what that actually is. Now, if you were um, to be reading, and this is something that Steve Lawson points out, if you were to be reading this in the Greek manuscript, you actually have the word the. It's a definite article that is before this faith. So, so reading it, it would be that would, they would be weak in the faith or strong in the faith. And this, is, this makes it not, this makes it a very specific and particular faith that he's talking about. Paul is not talking about the subjective, broad faith that a person may have to salvation. But Lawson says that this is um, the faith that would have been handed down. Or you could say this is the teachings, the doctrine of the church. 
the faith that is given um, is the faith that they are weak in. And this helps understand how can somebody be seeking to live and die unto the Lord, how can they be seeking to live their life to the Lord and yet still be weak in faith? Well, it makes sense if you're understanding the faith being the doctrine and teachings in the gospel that has been handed down. Someone may actually be weak in the doctrines and teaching of the Christian faith and yet still have great zeal and passion for the Lord. They may have great faith that might be misinformed or not as mature or well-informed as someone else. And so the objective faith, the truths of Scripture, are actually what Lawson would say is they are weak in. And you could actually picture these as these are people who have not been sitting long underneath good biblical teaching and instructions. They may be weak in faith and yet have all the faith in the world. Their personal salvific faith may be strong. And so those that are weak in faith... They may have doctrinal deficiencies. They may have great zeal, though. And when you have great zeal, but you're slightly off target, that zeal can take you downrange and you miss the mark. So you can be off theologically, but you had all the zeal and passion and desire to follow the Lord. And so this is the way that Lawson would help, um, help us understand and explain that. Now, I, at the same time, though, I don't want us to misunderstand and, and see that we are only talking about this hard line. We're only talking about doctrine. Um, there, another commentator um, who, who's excellent, he said, um, the faith that we're referring to, with, with respect to which these people are weak, therefore it is related to their basic faith in Christ, meaning their saving faith, but it's one step removed from it. So he would, he would actually draw it a little bit closer together to their saving faith. It is related to their saving faith. It is something that someone personally um, can have, but it's one step removed because it also entails and encompasses the doctrine, the teaching. He says it involves their individual outworking of Christian faith, their convictions about what that faith allows and what it prohibits. So it is their personal convictions, it is personal, and your personal convictions are going to then inform you as to what you can and you can't do. Um, and to help us kind of wrap our brain around this a little bit, let's go and flip over a few pages to um, Romans 4. Okay, And we're, we're going to see that correct doctrinal understanding is something that is applied to your personal faith. It's not just doctrine, but it's also not just your own personal convictions. So in Romans 4, we're going to see Abraham as a clarifying example of someone who was not weak in the faith, but is strong in the faith. And the, the words here are exactly what we are dealing with in Romans 14. So, Romans 4, starting in verse 19. And without becoming weak in, again, the faith, weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he looked at his body, I know what can and can't happen, but without becoming weak in the faith, his doctrine and his personal convictions of the Lord are strong. He looked at his body, contemplated it, yet with the respect to the promise of God, insofar as we are talking about God's promises, it says, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving honor to the Lord. 
So this is somebody, he knows the promises of God. He has the right doctrinal understanding. And what does he do with it? Since I know the right doctrinal understanding, I'm going to contemplate my, my body, my wife's body. There's no children that are happening. But I am strong in the faith, and I know what the promises of God say. And so, therefore, I'm going to give glory to God by believing God and trusting him, not trusting what my eyes and my mind tell me. So using the same, uh, same words that we're talking about in Romans 14, Abraham was someone who he did not become weak in the faith, but he applied his personal convictions to the doctrinal truths that he knew, and he grew strong in the faith. So it, it, it encompasses both his personal convictions applied to proper doctrinal truths. So we can go back over to Romans 14. And so when we look at this, we can see those who are weak in the faith, it is combining both a weakness in the doctrinal truths wrapped up together with their own personal walk, their own, own personal convictions. Um, I want to look at one other passage. Um, now that I just moved you to Romans 14, let's actually keep going. Um, we're closer to Ephesians 4 than you just were, so let's keep moving over to Ephesians 4. Um, and this is going to be an example of this playing out in the local church, in our local body. And this is a passage we know and are familiar with, but what I want you to look at is see how does the doctrinal truths actually play into an individual believer's growth and strengthening in their faith. So we'll, we'll see that doctrinal truths, doctrinal accuracy, it does build up and strengthen an individual believer. And so in verse 11, and he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to build up the body of Christ until we all, so the group of individuals, attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God. So it's until we attain a unity of the faith and of the knowledge, the doctrinal substance of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And what is the end? In verse 14, so that we are no longer to be children, but we are to, be, to grow in maturity, right? It says we are to no longer be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, to be strong in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. And so just in this short passage, we have in verse 13, there's a unity of the faith, the unity of or the full knowledge of the Son of God. They're no longer children, tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, and they are speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects. So the key passage on personal ministry within the church, within the local body, it is rooted in, and it's showing that the church itself is also rooted in, the unity of faith and knowledge and the ministry of speaking truth and building up, the goal is so that children will become mature. Those who are weak would become strong. And how mature and strong? Well, as Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So when we are back, and this time we're really back here in Romans 14, so if you go back there, in verse 1, Paul is commanding then, I want you to welcome and bring into your circle, bring into fellowship those who are weak and deficient in their faith. But there's a caveat. When you do this, it's not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. 
And so the, the idea of the opinions, this is, this is the connotation of where do you arrive? What are your thoughts that you arrive at after you've been dialoguing back and forth? Okay, If you and I were to engage in conversation and we're trying to understand what is the truth, and we, okay, we finally understand and we're on the same page, this is the truth. After our discussion, we understand this is where I stand, that that is what the opinion is. And so it's this idea that those who are weak in faith, it's not just something that they assume, but they have come to land on the conviction after wrestling with themselves, possibly wrestling, wrestling with others, maybe even wrestling with Scripture, they have come to the conviction that, okay, this is what is best. This is what is right. It might not be something that the scripture says, this is what you must do, but after wrestling back and forth, they have come to the determination, this is what the truth is. This is my opinion. And so our purpose as those who are strong, when we welcome in into fellowship and accept those who are weak in faith, the purpose of bringing them in is not to whip them into shape and to straighten up their opinions. The purpose is not passing judgment on their opinions. So what would the reason be? And the reason is actually that, and this comes out later on in the passage, but it's out of love. And this is exactly what has been um, spoken about in Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13 about the love being the foundational, um, the foundation of the relationships that are happening within the church. It's out of love that you enter into that fellowship and that um, unity with the other believers that are weaker in the faith. You're not doing it so I can fix them. It's not to proclaim that their convictions are wrong. You could think of it as missionary fellowshipping. You're not allowed to do that within the church. Just like somebody can't go date somebody in order to get them saved, you don't go fellowship with somebody in order to fix their convictions. You fellowship with them because they are a part of the body of Christ. It's rooted in love. And this, this is exactly in line with the fellowship and the coming together and the ministry and supporting that we have been called to in Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13. So, and we're about to see though, what happens when the opposite of this love rears its head? Again, we're talking about two groups of people who are living to the Lord. Let's look at verse 2. There's only like 40 more to go. <laughs> so, verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. And one who eats must not view the one who does not eat with contempt. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who eats. So the strong, they have faith that they can eat all things. But notice what the strong are, are um, told to not do. It says, they must not view with contempt. This would be to show by your attitude or your manner of the way that, the way that I treat you that something has no merit, something has no worth. It might be showing disdain. This is what, showing, this is what contempt is. Those who have strength are not to show contempt upon those who are weaker and have the convictions that are, um, that are not rooted in the same sound doctrine that you have. You could think of it that way. So the strong is not to show contempt, but notice what the weak person is not supposed to do. The weak eats vegetables only, does, or does not eat, is the words that it says, but they are to not judge. And this would actually be to pass judgment on the lives and the actions of other people. But it also has the connotation of criticizing or finding fault with or even condemning. So this is not um, just in the dietary convictions in this passage. It's not just in, oh, I eat or I don't eat and therefore I disdain you or I pass judgment upon you. But um, we actually see this 
in other areas of their life as well. In verse 5, it says, one person judges one day over another. How do you observe the Sabbath? How do you observe the holidays, whether the religious or the secular? This is what they are struggling with. One judges one day above the other, and another regards every day as alike. And then, as we mentioned earlier, verse 21, it's drinking wine. And so, again, possibly all of these are coming out of the fact that some people have grown up within a, we'll call it this biblical Jewish background. Others have grown up with this pagan background. Both have these convictions and their worlds are colliding in a real live local church. And while everyone is seeking to live for the Lord, messes arise. Convictions differ. Dietary convictions, sabbatical convictions, the, the Sabbath, the holy days, what you eat, what you drink, and in those three cases, in each one of these, the lesser, the, the lesser informed, the weaker brother, or the one who um, has less faith in what he knows, he holds to standards and convictions that are apart from proper teaching of Scripture. I hold convictions that are not spelled out in Scripture. And he imposes those convictions, those opinions that he has wrestled to, he imposes those upon others. And those that don't follow my convictions that I know are true, those who don't follow them are judged. That's what the weaker brother's doing. And the strong holds that they're not inherently sinful. The weak holds that the most faithful position or the most mature position would to observe these restrictions, to implement them into my life and into my family. The strong, it begrudges, it shows contempt for the weaker brother. How could you not see that this is something that we're permitted to do? The stronger judges as less holy. So you can see how these two descriptions that Paul gives, it is so something that we see even in our own lives. Those who impose these not biblically laid out restrictions judge those who don't hold the same convictions. And those who clearly see the freedom we have in Christ, they show contempt upon those in their own body who are wanting to bind me and my freedoms to something that isn't required by Scripture. And contempt is shown towards them. So brothers and sisters, let me give you a warning. Those of us with sound doctrine, we must not respond with contempt upon those who name Christ but not Calvin. We can't show contempt upon those who made Jesus their Savior at 8 and their Lord at 12. I mean, or 21. We'll, we'll say 21. My notes say 22. 22. Now, what about those who believe that the rapture is after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or that there is no rapture? How easy it is for us to show contempt or disdain for those who don't they see what Scripture lays out so plainly. It's something that easily can happen with us. And at the same time, those of us with higher, and I will say extra-biblical standards, we can't judge those that don't follow. Here's a favorite Calvary one. How many of us with kids, man, those families that take their kids to public school, they don't homeschool. It, that, that's, a bit, that's a big one here, right? How many kids do you have? I mean, clearly the most godly is to have, how many do I have? I almost said seven. I have six. Six. <laughs> So how many kids do you have? Where are your kids in school? Or can you believe not only does this family drink, they actually do it in public at restaurants. This judgment 
that we can show on other believers that don't hold to our extra-biblical standards that we have wrestled through and come to. This is the most biblical or or God-honoring way of playing this truth out in our lives. When we look at children that have phones, we judge. When we look at music selections, if you get in somebody's car and a pop station, I'm not a music guy, but you know, if you had a popular radio station on the phone, do you judge? Huh. Or if it was KLTY, do you judge? <laughs> what about the clothing selection? All of these things, and we can see how this happens. This is, this is something that either one of these we can easily see in our own hearts, where when we have the best doctrine, we can show contempt. Or when we have the strictest or most holy guidelines, we can show judgment. And the acts of Christian unity that we must obey in our lives and in the life of Calvary Bible Church is that we don't judge, and by that I mean both show contempt as well as judge, because God alone is judge. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He who regards the day regards it for the Lord, and he who eats, eats for the Lord. You understand that? This is what we were talking about. They're all pursuing a faithful life of God living for the Lord, and we are condemning or judging their pursuit of the Lord. He who eats, eats for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who doesn't eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So there is so much more to say on this. But what I want us to do is focus on on this right here in verse 6. It says, eats for the Lord. In this context, both the weaker and the stronger brother are worshiping their Lord in what they do. And this goes then to what we were talking about earlier. For not one of us lives for himself. Paul is speaking to those who are pursuing the life of obedience to the Lord. Not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He says, not one of us. He's operating under the assumption that both the weak and the strong, both sides of the aisle, are living their lives and seeking to meet their life and their death in worship to the Lord. So the acts that we do in service and obedience to our Lord, we are wanting to make sure that the actions or the inactions are worship to the Lord. This says, are we free to participate in something that is falling short of worship? Am I wanting to participate in an action not out of a heart of worship, and I'm going to pick one. This isn't a hobby horse or anything, but let's just say alcohol. Are you wanting to say, I'm free in Christ to drink alcohol, but your heart, you are not drinking the alcohol for the Lord? Romans 14 is not a passage that you can go to to participate in that. The understanding here is everything that you're doing, whatever you're abstaining from, or whatever you're doing is out of service to the Lord. So if you have a freedom in Christ to do the, you know, now the good, what do you call them, the young, reformed, and restless group that they go to the cigar shops and, you know, do the... uh, Pipes, I think, is what these, you got these young reformed guys and they're smoking pipes and things of that nature. Are you doing that and saying, if, and pick, pick your vice, I'm not, not vice. <laughs> you know where I stand, right? So pick your thing. 
if it, if it is something that you're doing and enjoying, and this is worship to the Lord, this is Romans 14. But I'm just putting a caveat out there. If you are doing something because I have this freedom to do this and you're not allowed to take this from me, that's not Romans 14. So just clarifying that right there. But look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. John MacArthur says, we are the Lord's in the fullest possible sense. And to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. To deny the lordship of Christ in the life of any believer is to subvert the full work, the power, and the purpose of his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is who Christ is. He is Lord of both the dead and the living. Are you? No, of course we're not. And look at verse 10. He says, but who are you? And why do you judge your brother? Or why do you view your brother with contempt? So he's looking at both. Those who judge, those who view with contempt. This verse is addressing both the stronger and the weaker. God alone is judge. And we see this playing out throughout this passage. But I want, I want to go ahead and write down um, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Um, and we, we know that we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ where we will be recompensed for what we do. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Christ and God is the judge. We are not. Therefore, don't judge your brother. God alone is judge. But secondly, don't hinder. Do not hinder your brother because this pleases God. I'm going to read, just read through. And I tell you, here's, here's what I'm going to do. So we've got about nine minutes. Let's read through. Let's just read through this passage. In light of what we have talked about up till now, this lays the context for our understanding of this passage. And the, these other three sections will just unfold. So let's just listen, starting in verse 13. Underneath, don't hinder because this pleases God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather, judge this. What is it that you are to judge and determine? Not to put a stumbling block or an offense before the brother. I know and am convinced in the Lord that nothing is defiled in itself. But to him who considers anything to be defiled, to him it is defiled. And this is just the conviction, the conscience. If there is someone who has a conviction or a conscience that participating in something would be sin, it will be defiling sin. Even though we may have freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, if my conscience incorrectly tells me it's wrong, it will be wrong for me to eat. Four, verse 15. If because of food your brother is grieved, think of that. If because of food your brother is grieved, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for who Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is good for you, a good thing, to be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, this is so key. Notice three things that we find in this passage, in this verse. For he who serves in this way, meaning he who does not put the stumbling block in the, in the, in the path of his brother, he who serves in this way, number one, serves Christ. Number two is pleasing to God. And number three is approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace, for the building up of one another. 
do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. And, and this is the correct doctrine. He, he lays out, all things are clean. There it is. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. So all of this has been to the strong. The one who has the right doctrine. Don't destroy that which God has built for your freedom of whatever it might be. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed is he who does not judge himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Back to the conscience. Because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Number three, be selfless. Why? Because Christ is selfless. Be selfless because Christ is selfless. Let's read in, uh, start, starting in verse 1 of Romans 15. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor, for it is good to his building up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may have one you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Living this way is the way Christ lived, and Christ lived for God's glory, and now you and I, by living this way, can give glory to God as well. And then ultimately, what we're going to find as number four, the last piece, and I'm going to scroll over here and make sure I don't get it wrong, because I actually got number three wrong. <laughs> so number four, be welcoming because God's plan is his glory. Be welcoming because God's plan from the very beginning is his glory. Notice as we go through this last section, look at the praise and the glory and the worship that God receives. And this is, some, this is going to be repeating multiple Old Testament passages showing how the Jew and the Gentile were together to come and praise and glorify God. So it says, verse 7, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. That same word that we were talking about at the beginning, the welcome one another in. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. These were promises made to the Jews, but listen to what these promises were. For, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will all abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see in this passage from 
14 up through 15, that we have as Calvary Bible Church, Church acts that we must implement into our lives. And the result of that is going to be that we will have lives and a church that is giving praise and glory and worship to God. We don't judge. We don't hinder. We are selfless. We are welcoming. And the result of this is God is glorified. May we find God glorified and praised in the life of Calvary Bible Church. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the encouragement from your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would convict and change each of our hearts today. Father, may you receive glory as a result of the way we live our lives with one another. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.